I've often been known to make mistakes. Didn't know if we had one more song there. Had a moment of paralysis. It's all good. Turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. We return again this evening. It's been a number of weeks since we've looked into the Word of God. We introduced the book of Ruth a number of weeks ago. And uh, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been an unusual kind of pattern to our, uh, just our rhythm of gathering. And that is the way things happen sometimes. But tonight we look into the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. And our focus will mainly be verses 6 down through verse 22. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 22, you could title the overall series, The Romance of Redemption. Just literally every series, every sermon is really describing the love of Jehovah God for His people. We see His superintending of the sovereign plan of salvation throughout the scriptures, and Ruth really highlights that. But tonight we'll focus on Ruth's resolve. Ruth's resolve, beginning there in verse... 6, and read down with me through verse 22 to lay the foundation this evening. Now, she arose with her daughters-in-law, this is speaking of Naomi. Then Naomi arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly, Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead, speaking of Malon and Kilion, her sons, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, verse 10, they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go back with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has, has gone back to her people and to her gods, little g, gods, return after your sister-in-law, follow her pattern, follow her way. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. 
Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this is the word of God. Last time together, we looked at how God's providence is always at work, even when we cannot see it. In fact, I would tell you, we hardly ever see it. We see the results of it, don't we, in our everyday lives. In British literature, there's a poem that maybe encapsulizes in a beautiful way the providence of God. My ninth grade Brit Lit teacher, Miss Judy Adams, forced us, and I'm glad she did, to memorize this poem by William Cooper, 1773. He wrote this, a hymn or a poem entitled Conflict, Light Shining Out of Darkness. And if you know anything about Cooper, some say Cowper, it looks like Cowper, some say Cooper. If you know anything about him, he struggled with mental illness. He struggled with depression. He struggled with, at times, God's hand in his life. He penned these words that has helped many people. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill He treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. What we're going to find in this story is that in God's timing and in that God's way when his purposes are ripe, the clouds that we so much dread that we see break with blessings, not only on Ruth's head and Naomi's head, but on our head tonight right here at Grace Church in Kingston, Tennessee. God's providence and His purposes, His will, are our comfort in this life, even when we do not understand what it is He is doing. His providence is His daily carrying out of His sovereignty in the everyday Routines of our lives, the conversations that we have, the additions, the subtractions, the blessings, the trials. Just by way of review, as we look here into this text, I want to remind us, some of you were not with us last time, we'll just touch on briefly that the theme here in the opening five verses is just faithlessness as not only a nation, covenant faithlessness as a nation, and also covenant faithlessness as a family. If you notice there with me in the text in verse 1, the context is the time of the judges. And of course, the theme of the book of Judges is every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And it's in this kind of culture, this existential culture, it's in this time where 
morality is relative, really limited to whatever I think it is, the common everyday man would say, that is the theme of Judges. And that is where this story finds, this account finds itself. God wants us to know something here, church. God wants us to know that in the worst of times, as Dickens says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I believe that's the tale of two cities, that the opening line, he says that. So here, you could say, it was the worst of times, the book of Judges, but God also wants us to know it, it was the best of times. Whether or not we could see it just yet, you trace his hand of providence best by looking backwards. So we see covenant faithlessness as a nation. There's another theme that runs along this, and it's this. It's, it's disaster. It is trial. Notice how God brings a famine in the land. And how is it that they respond to it? Well, we see the covenant faithlessness of a family. They, they run. They leave. Verse 2 tells us the name of this man was Elilemic, and his name of, the name of his wife was Naomi. Elilemic's name is, my God is sovereign, my God reigns, my God is king. And here we see that he is running from this God. Notice how our text, verses 1 and 2, emphasizes for us that they were Ephrathites of, of Bethlehem and Judah. Twice, multiple times we see this here, that the Holy Spirit wants us to know that they were a distinguished clan, notable. They were a leading family within Bethlehem, Judah. So the fact that they would leave under God's chastening hand, is, is, is bad. It speaks of unbelief. It speaks of getting out of the will of God. Maybe just to put it in an old-fashioned vernacular that we use in the South, backsliding. They are not in the will of God. They are running away from God. And so this move to Moab really reveals their thought processes, fleshly reasoning, the wisdom of human reasoning. Well, what you ought to do is... Go over there in Moab where they don't have famine. If you look at a map, you can see that the Red Sea is in the very middle. Judah, I'm pointing for your purposes, is, is to, the right, to the left. And Moab is to the right. And it's said that you could see Moab across the Red Sea from Judah, excuse me, Bethlehem, and looking across, and you could see it. And the perspective that they would have at a time of famine would be the grass is certainly greener, on the other side. But friends, the grass is not always greener on the other side. We see here this is fleshly reasoning. Simply expedient reasoning. And you say, LeGrand, that sounds, what's the problem here? Well, we're not going to review all of the last message, but I just want to remind you, we are called as God's people to trust the Lord. We are called to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, to lean not into our own understanding, and in all of our ways, ways like this, He will direct our paths. Do not be wise, verse 7 of Proverbs 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil, not run to evil. Not run in the sense of the context matters, yes, context is key, but God has given strict orders to His people. That he has delivered them to the promised land, the house of bread, the land flowing with milk and honey. And if God is bringing famine, there's a reason for it. In fact, he has told them in the book of Deuteronomy, if you will obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me and pursue idols, I will curse you, I will chasten you. And we see that their response to the chastening hand of God, we're not going to review those passages in the Old Testament or in the book of Deuteronomy, but their response is to run. 
Verse 2, and so they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. They sojourned there. They notice here the progression. Verse 1 speaks of a short-term journey, a sojourning. And verse 2 tells us that they then remained there in the land. Literally, it can be rendered, I believe, in the New King James country, New American Standard, they remained there in the land. The most literal rendering is field. They remained in the field. They found them a place to to rent. They found them a place to labor. They found them a place to grow a crop. And they're dwelling in a corner in Moab. This is how far they have fallen. Notice with me verse 3. Then Elilemic, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one, or the one, was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then, if things couldn't get worse, they certainly do. Verse 5, then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman, Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. Think about it with me. Elimelech, some people say it's correctly said Elimelech, and I'm trying to say it the correct way, I'm finding it difficult. Elilamech left Bethlehem in order to, quote, save his family, to save them from what? From death. And what does he find in Moab outside of the will of God? He finds that which he was running for, from, that which is death. The sooner does he die, then suddenly in the text his two sons die. Verse 4 says, they took for themselves wives... I said no sooner, but the the context here, some renderings can be up to 10 years. They married for a decade. They live here in the land, and yet they chose for themselves two Moabite women. Two Moabite women who worship false gods. This is exactly what God has told his people not to do. And when they do this, he will bring the chastening hand of judgment upon them. In fact, the Moabites were known to worship one key god named Chemosh. Chemosh. And Chemosh was known for child sacrifice. There's different versions of how they would do this. I'm not going to go into detail for sake of our mixed audience, but it is grotesque and just horrific of how they would go about offering their children to this false god. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26 gives one description where the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, so he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall to Chemosh. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. There's many more things we could tease out, but the bottom line is this. This is, in one sense, covenant faithlessness. This is marriage outside of covenant faithfulness, guidance from Yahweh. This is marriage outside of God's plan for His people. And yet, what we will see is yet even in this, this is not beyond God's grace. Friends, behold the bitter, sweet providence of God. How He can take our stubbornness, how he can take our rebellion, how he can take our sinful decisions and redeem them for his own purposes and glory. 
What a deep well to, to drink from. What a deep well to give consideration to for how God has constantly been redeeming His people even through the sinful choices that His people make. Where Joseph is able to look at his brothers in the face and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do you explain that? You, you really can't other than just to simplistically say, God is sovereign. In the moment, it is horrific to be sold into slavery but when you look back and trace his hand of providence, you see that a smiling face is behind those dark clouds. And ultimately, one person has described the will of God. Hang with me. As difficult as what I'm about to say is, is what you would choose to if you knew what he knows. We'll say that again. It has been described that the will of God would be that which you would choose as well, if you only knew what he knows. Now, that is not an inspired statement, so if you want to argue with me about that, we, we can talk about it afterwards. I think that's helpful at times to some degree. One thing that I think is interesting is that as you think about this being in the time of the book of Judges, this is simply one family. And obviously, it's a really important family, as we're going to see as we trace through the, the themes and the implications of the kinsman redeemer and salvation. As we, I don't want to get ahead of my help, myself on those things. But friends, John Piper, I believe, has said that God is doing at any moment in our life 10,000 things. He just obviously threw that number out of nowhere. 10,000 things, and you may be aware of two of them. Now, that's just on an individual level. But think about on a corporate level, in a church. Think about it on a national level, in a nation. And what we're seeing here is zoomed in the book of Judges. is just what God is doing in one family. And how he's bringing about these purposes for his glory and for our good. And yet... Mysteriously, these people are out of the known will of God. Verse 4 says this, The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt and lived there in the land for about ten years. Orpah's name means stubborn, and Ruth's name means friendship. In fact, Ruth chapter 4 verse 10 reveals that Ruth was married to Milan and Orpah was evidently then by deduction Killian's wife. Now notice they lived here for about 10 years. This is 10 years of childlessness. God has not allowed them to have children. We understand that children are from Yahweh. They are from the Lord. These are not things that anyone can boast in. They are blessings. They are gifts from God. He alone opens and closes the womb. And in fact, Deuteronomy 28 verse 18 just simply says this. One of the things that God communicates to his people that if they are not faithful to him, he will bring about cursings upon them. And one of those cursings that he mentions is childlessness if they turn aside to false gods or intermarry with pagan nations. We see that is exactly what is happening here in our text. Verse 5 then says this, Then both Malon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husbands. Ruth thought that she knew what heartache was in the losing of her spouse. Many of you have lost your spouse, and you wouldn't wish that upon your worst enemy. It's a depth of pain, it's a depth of grief, it's a depth of black and white, of how you see the world and the valleys of sorrow that are just really inexplicable and indescribable. I heard a man say this week, you could prepare for death, but you cannot prepare for the loss. 
You can mentally prepare for death and know that it's coming, but when the loss happens, there's nothing that replaces that, the sense of loss and all that it entails emotionally and physically and spiritually. Ruth, no doubt, as many people are shaken to their cores and the loss of a spouse is probably still in the processes of grief. And I think in one sense, if you want to explain Ruth, I mean Naomi, if you want to explain Naomi and her multifaceted personality, it's one that obviously endeared her daughter-in-laws to her, as we'll see in just a moment. The fact that they will not leave her, but at the same time could be very unbearable to be around. Bitter, turning sour, turning bitter wrestling with God, no doubt frustrating and reliving the decisions that were made. What ifs, right? Those are things we often do. What if we had done this? What if we had done that? What if we had gone here instead of going there? And what if? And what if? And all those types of questions. Naomi is internalizing these things and they're literally expressing themselves in such a worn way on her physique and her body that this leading lady will ultimately say, wait a second, is that Naomi, I don't think they were making fun of her for returning. I think they couldn't recognize her. She bore in her body, she bore in her face the effects of all of these things. And no sooner does her husband die than her two sons die as well. So loss, heartache, suffering, despair. Friends, being out of the will of God is one thing, but this brings it and accentuates it on a whole nother level. All buffering cushions are gone. Relationships that may shield you in one sense are gone. Naomi is what you would describe hitting rock bottom. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She has a common link with her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, and that common link is simply this. If nothing else, it's grief. It is sorrow. It is tears. She is united in sorrow with her daughter-in-laws. One commentator says this, The woman was left as a remnant out of her two children and her husband. There is no doubt that in the dark night of the soul, she felt like it. We all know what it's like in one sense. I say we all know. Many people know. Some more than others because of the type of loss. But when you lose a child, particularly if you've had a lifetime with that child or a number of years with that child, that loss hurts even more because it's not supposed to happen that way, right? They're supposed to bury us. We're not supposed to bury them. She's experiencing all of this. As we look in verses 6 down through verse 22 very quickly tonight, we will not be able to get into the weeds, but we will try to cover it the best we can. I want to make note of these headings as we come to them. Number, number one, notice there with me in verse 6. Things begin to change in this dark night of the soul, this grief that Naomi is experiencing. Until now, the emphasis is still upon Naomi. It has not shifted to Ruth yet, for which the book is named after. First of all, I want you to note the report of Yahweh's mercy. The report of Yahweh's mercy. Notice there with me in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. Why is that? For she heard in the country of Moab... In other words, as she is living there, she had heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Isn't that interesting how tables turn, isn't it? They took the, the path of least resistance. They took the fleshly choice to go to where the bread was. We looked at that irony of Bethlehem being known as the house of bread, and God removes that blessing. 
They go to pagan lands of Moab to just feed their bellies in that sense. And yet, as they're in the land of Moab, she hears the report of Yahweh's pity, His mercy upon His people. And the wheels begin to turn. She's at rock bottom. She has nothing left. She's lost the closest relationships that she has to her. Her pride is gone. All of that is gone. In fact, you can say it like this. Some commentators say there's a number of parallels between Naomi and the prodigal son, interestingly enough, just to make a couple. Both went out into the far country from the father, right? The idea is going away from where God dwells, going away from Yahweh. The prodigal son from the father, Naomi from Jehovah, from Yahweh. Both went into the far country. Both went out full. Both came back empty. Both were motivated by hearing and thinking and meditating of the Father's care and provision. There's probably more there than that. I just quickly remember that I had read that this week and put some of those down in my notes this afternoon. But what a thought. She went out full. And she comes back empty. She's considering. She's meditating on. And all this begins through a report that the Lord had visited His people. All kinds of questions begin to emerge here, right? Have they repented? What took place? Did God's people turn and repent and turn from their sins and return again to Him? Did they forsake their idols? We just don't know. If you study the book of Judges, what a topographical, the topography of Judges is insane. I mean, it's just up and down and up and down. There's just, there's just no idea. There's just no way to know. We don't know exactly where uh, Ruth fits within the whole topography of of judges, so we cannot conjecture on that. But the bottom line is, is something took place to where God turns again His blessing and provision for His people. Secondly, notice that they began to plan their return to the promised land, their return home, beginning there in verse 7. And Naomi, for all the light that she has received and all the light that she has and knows to be true of God, In one sense, that's what motivates her to return home, but that's not necessarily what she gives to her daughter-in-laws. There's a, number two, the realism of Naomi on the return home. The realism. This is like worldly wisdom, carnal reasoning, fleshly wisdom over biblical reasoning, truthful reasoning, spiritual reasoning. Notice verse 7. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was, Moab, and her two daughter-in-laws are accompanying with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, it's almost as if she stops midway, she says, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead with me. You've dealt kindly with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. She is well meaning. But here we see a portrait of Naomi using worldly wisdom, not spiritual wisdom. Notice what she says there Turn back, my daughters, verse 11. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, that they may be your husbands? Speaking of leveret marriages within God's economy of provision, if you want to see some examples of this, 
You can go back to the story of Judah and Tamar. There are other illustrations of God's instruction. When one man dies, if a brother dies, it was the responsibility of the next brother to give the widowed children so that the name, the line, could continue. This was God's plan for his people in the land, for their progeny, for their continuation. This is leveret marriage, and yet she's being truthful, but she's saying, this isn't going to work, right? And you get the full implications of that. Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. No, my daughter-in-laws, verse 13, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has come against me. Notice how she views all of these things in Right in a rightful sense, as the chastening, burdening hand of God. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You do likewise. She's being sensible. This is the realism of Naomi. This is that worldly wisdom. In fact, uh, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, there's the worldly wise man. Oftentimes, we are thinking and talking like the worldly wise man. We are not thinking after the Spirit and after the Word of God. Just think about what Naomi is saying here. She's telling her two Moabite daughter-in-laws to go back to Chemosh, to go back to where there is no hope, where there is no salvation. There is no hope for them. In one sense, we can understand it. She's saying, Moab is no place for an Israelite widow to remain. And as she's thinking practically, she's saying, in Judah and Bethlehem is no place for Moabite widows to tarry. She's not thinking correctly, though. Better to have, excuse me, a living hell of a life here on earth and to come into saving faith with Yahweh and forever be united as the people of God, than to have a peaceful life on this earth and to go back to the land of comfort, to go back to Chemosh and burn forever in hell. Naomi is not giving sound counsel. Naomi is not giving sound wisdom. She exhorts them, verse 8, notice that phrase, to go back to, interesting, your mother's house? That's interesting, isn't it? Not your father's house? Later she will make mention of the father's house. This phraseology, this wordplay, points to the fact that it was in the mother's chamber, the mother's room, where wedding details were planned, where the, the intricacies of planning a, a marriage, a wedding, all the things that go into it were done in the mother's chamber, and that's what she is pointing to. Go back to your mother's chamber where there may be hope for you to marry, notice here, worldly wisdom here, a good Moabite young man. There's still hope for you to do that. And while there is hope for them to do that, she's not pointing to their spiritual well-being. Do you ever find that we think the same way? We do not give sound counsel at times to those that we know and love. We give worldly, wise men counsel. And we take no thought at times into the soul, the matters of the soul, what God's Word says about. That's what we call having a, a scriptural worldview. So she attempts to give them a blessing. Go to your mother's house, verse 8. Yahweh deal kindly with you. Yahweh grant you husbands. The verse 10 speaks of the level of relationship that these young ladies have with Naomi. They were attached to bitter, grieving Naomi. 
So it speaks of one aspect of common bond. There were aspects of Naomi that they loved. They had relationships towards and with. And they had a sense of devotion towards her. Verses 11, 12, and 13, notice how Naomi is really expressing bitterness towards God. She tells them that if you come with me, only hopelessness awaits you. Only bitterness and hardship, verse 13, is in store for you. Well, how do you know that, Naomi? You didn't experience any of these things until you left the presence of the Lord. You find these things in Moab, and now you're wanting in one sense for yourself to, to go back to these things, but you think you know God's plan and His will for them? And there is a sense where there's a worldly wisdom at play. And I know some of you are thinking, well, but Legrand, well, what kind of place would Bethlehem be to Moabite women? They are the cursed people. Absolutely. But decisions have already been made. Covenants have already happened. Relationships are already forever, eternally in cement. Things are what they are. And friends, it's in those dark moments of relationships and mistakes and sin that God delights in showing His redeeming grace. We don't have it figured out. God in His providence is really the one leading calling out Ruth in his own timing and his way with his electing, redeeming love. Thirdly, we see the reality on display here of Ruth's love. And really, we begin to see the glimmers of her true believing faith in the Lord, in Adonai, in Yahweh. And in fact, what we have here in verses 16 through 18 is one of the great statements of love, commitment. How many of you have been in a wedding and you've heard verses 16, 17, and 18 read at a wedding, anybody, you know, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. It's beautiful. Some of the most beautiful language in all of, not only scripture, but in, in, in literature. It is captivating. In fact, you'd be shocked if you just, there's a study I would encourage you to do just to do the prayers. Take the prayer of Hannah. Take the prayer of Mary. Take the song of Miriam in Exodus 18. Take Ruth's covenant statement here and just study them. God delights in bringing upon the pages of Scripture and the pages of history those who are marginalized and obscure that no one is necessarily looking to for great statements, and He delights in using them and giving them to us. And here Ruth, in these verses, gives up some beautiful, Spirit-inspired statements. Verse 16, Entreat me. Do not ask me to leave you, Naomi. So here's the idea. Ruth has been quiet up until this point. She's been watching Naomi give worldly wisdom both to her, but really the conversation is between her and Orpah. The idea here is that maybe Orpah is just the stronger personality. Orpah's the one who's the talkative person. She's the emotional person. But you get just steady, quiet Ruth over here to the side. She's not even uttered a word up until this point that we know of or that's recorded. But when her moment comes, she expresses her heart. And she says to Naomi, do not ask me to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Notice this sense of resolve. If a theme word in the first part of this book could be crisis, decision, or resolve would be the next word that we would see here. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, yes, bitter Naomi, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Now, a key statement here, your God shall be my God. Literally, the word here for God is Adonai. Your Adonai shall be my Adonai. No longer Chemosh, 
no longer the pagan God. This is conversion, people. This is an expression of faith. This is a resolve that she will now take up her cross and follow after Yahweh. Whatever the cost. Whatever the sacrifice. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Verse 17. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried also. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. If I ever take back these words. If I ever leave you, the Lord do so more to me. Here Ruth speaks with such power and velocity. In such a short economy of words. Notice how the text tells us that Naomi just simply relents. The idea here is that Ruth doesn't speak a lot. But when she speaks, Ruth's one of those people that there's power to it because she means what she says. There's not a ton of words and then maybe take 10% of them to, to heart. No, there's very little words, but when she speaks, they're deep words. In fact, in the whole of this thing, the theme here is not Ruth's talking, but her actions, what she does. Fourthly and lastly, we see the report of Yahweh's chastening in verses 19 through 21. Do not feel like I'm doing this justice. Verse 19, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened that when they had come to Bethlehem, the house of bread, that the city was excited because of them. And the women said this, they said, Is this Naomi? Remember that this was a leading family, it is believed, of Bethlehem Ephrathah. This leading woman, Naomi, now comes back. And let's point to the reality. Let's give her praise for the fact that she comes back. In a sense, this is not just a verbal repentance. This is a literal repentance. It's, if you study the Scriptures and do a word study on repentance, it literally means to return, to return again to the Lord. Come and let us return to the Lord. And even in her, notice here, imperfect repentance, right? This is imperfect every step of the way. But let's praise Naomi in that in her imperfectness that God's enabling grace brings her back. Friends, your repentance sometimes, it's not about your repentance. In a sense, you are to repent. It's all about His sovereign grace. Sometimes we can wrestle with the dark night of the soul. Have I repented enough? Friends, we recognize the grace of God in her life. Is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. This is where that imperfect repentance comes in. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. And the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me. And the Lord has afflicted me. And what we see here is this theme of her announcement to her former friends and acquaintances is a theme of bitterness, verse 20. Emptiness, verse 21. And affliction, verse 21. Naomi does not deny the fact that she is a living billboard for what disobedience looks like. But she's glad to be home. There is no place like home. And that's what we see in verse 22. The revelation of Yahweh's pity. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, notice that designation, her daughter-in-law with her, there by her side, 
who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Friends, there's so many things here that we see, and we're going to tease out even more, but I just want to encourage your hearts as we look to the Lord's table this evening, the visible expression of the gospel of the Lord and its atoning work for us. It pictures that, it preaches that, it speaks of that. But if you want to look at, at Ruth, what you'll see, if you look closely enough, is the church. As you look at Moabitess Ruth, or Ruth from Moab, what you see is us. If you look closely enough, you see a Gentile who God poured out his sovereign grace and called to himself. It didn't just call to himself, but was pleased, had pleasure and glorified himself in the fact that he would place her in the line of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice in verses 1 and 2 how the emphasis is put on Bethlehem Ephrathah. To the Jew who was reading this account, who rehearses this account, so much more about that later, it rings a bell. That sounds familiar. Why is that? Because there will come one who will be a king, the second king of the children of Israel, who will represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And where will he be born? In Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And from his line will come the true and better David. Wait a second, wait a second. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about Jesus who will come to save his people from his sins. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, yes. And God delights in his electing grace to call a Moabitess to himself and to join her to his people through her kinsman redeemer named Boaz. Friend, as you just think about God's saving grace in your life, we're not the good people back in Judah who never left. This isn't about being good or, or being bad. This is about just getting ourselves, in one sense, out of the scene. But then, if we look closely enough, we begin to hear themes and echoes and mirrors of God's redeeming grace. And friends, most of us in this room are Gentiles. We were lost we were like Abraham, we were like Ruth, we didn't know our spiritually our right hand from our left until the Lord began to take the Word of God and the Spirit of God and He began to show us our lostness. He began to show us that while we may not have worshipped Chemosh, we worshipped false idols and we served false idols. And He was pleased to bring us out of darkness. In fact, I think it would be fitting, go to, go to Ephesians chapter 2, just briefly, and notice how Paul picks up on this same language in Ephesians chapter 2. In the same way Ruth was in a land of spiritual darkness, a pagan land, Paul picks up on this very language for us as well. As he reminds the church, Paul was the apostle to the church, and he reminds us that we were bought with this same glorious salvation, Ephesians chapter 2. May the Lord take these final verses to prepare our hearts for remembering His atoning work for us. Paul says this, And you, Legrand, and you, insert your name there, if you are saved by grace, and you, Grace Church, He has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which 
you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Notice here, and we were by nature children of Moab, children of wrath, just to make a point. We were by nature, we were born this way, just as others. Maybe some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible, verse 4, but God. But God what? God interposed His precious blood. But God intervened. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Hold on a second. This is glorious news, but why does he do that? Why did he save Ruth? And why did he save me? Why does he save you? Why does he save us? And why does he save anyone? Well, notice verse 7. Verse 6, excuse me, by grace you have been saved through faith. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That... In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friend, if you are in Christ tonight, you are a trophy of His glorious grace. It's not about you. It's ultimately not about Ruth. It's all about Him. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the portraits of grace that we find in the Old Testament portraits of your kindness, portrait of the gospel poured out upon the undeserving, the lost, those separated from God. But Father, we don't sit here to die as spectators rehearsing not only your saving grace in the lives of others, but Lord, we have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. We have experienced this as well. This is why we have hope. This is why we have joy. You have written these things. You have given us these things so that our joy may be full, complete. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the finished work of Christ. The fact that you said it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. Nothing else to be accomplished. We love to rehearse this, to remember, to remind ourselves, and to obey our Lord's command that until you come as often as we do it, to do it in remembrance of you. Father, we pray that you would lead us now in the rest of the service. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.